So we are in the book of Amos, obscure book, one of the minor prophets. Um, somebody asked me, why, why are you preaching from the book of Amos? And I said, well, I've, I've never heard anyone preach from the book of Amos. So like, <laughs> it's in the Bible, so it must be important. So let's look at it. And uh, so we're going to pick up today in chapter 6, verse 8. And this is going to mark part 8. So if you've been with us, and these are all on SoundCloud for free, there's a, an ongoing narrative throughout this. So we were in part 7 last week. This is part 8 today. And as I, I looked more closely this week in preparing, I noticed that this, ha- this has a lot of similarities with last week's sermon. So it's in, in many ways kind of a part 2 from last week. But for that reason, and I know not all of you heard last week's message, I wanted to quickly kind of recap what happened in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Amos comes, and uh, he's got some really unpopular things to say. As I said last week, it's not like one of those sermons everyone's excited about, like at youth camp where they're talking about sex or relationships, where everyone just loves to hear. It's not that. Like, he's preaching the type of sermon that, like, you don't want to hear. Because it makes you feel uncomfortable and uneasy because he's calling you out on garbage and crap in your life. That's that's what he's doing here. And that's what he was doing really in from chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. He was calling the people to self-evaluate themselves. To self-evaluate yourself. Because Israel had kind of a lofty opinion of themselves. And so he calls them in verse 2. He says, are you better than the other nations? Are you? Are you, are you better than these other, other nations? And of course the answer is, no, they're, they're not better than the other nations, but they thought they were. In fact, verse one of chapter six, they called themselves the first of the nations, right? We're like, we're, we're the best, cause, cause we're, we're America, and uh, we're awesome at being America. And this is kind of their, their attitude. Very complacent. Feeling like everything with them and God is totally okay. Feeling very confident, overly confident, you might say, in their own strength. And see, part of the temptation is when you're going through something really difficult, man, you need God, right? Right? A relationship maybe doesn't work out the way you want it to. Or you get some bad health news about a family member. Man, you need God in that moment. You really need God. But then once everything kind of works its out, it's, you don't need God as much than later on. At least that's the temptation, right? It's like, okay, God, well, you did your thing. Now just wait in the corner and try not to get in my way. And I'll let you know if I need you. That's the temptation. And as we said last week, 40 years earlier, Israel, man, their circumstances were very different. 40 years earlier, they really needed God. But they've been in this rather golden age, this time of peace and prosperity for the last four decades in which they don't really need God. Which is why in chapter 6, verse 1, he says they feel secure. They shouldn't feel secure. They feel at ease. They shouldn't feel at ease in their mountain fortresses in Samaria. And their faith? Oh, yeah, they checked the box. They, you know, came, warmed a pew, you know, read a Bible verse each day, I suppose. Um, But their faith was just really external. Just kind of like checking the box. It was just going through the motions. Um, their hearts were very far from God. They, they no longer were dependent upon the Lord 
the way they used to be dependent upon the Lord. And so, as we saw last week, it's a call. Amos is calling them, self-evaluate your lives because you guys have really gotten into pride and arrogance, thinking that you're better than everybody else. Whether it's nationalistically or individualistically, it can sneak up on you. And I said last week, right? We're America, right? One of the greatest countries. And that's, that's terrific. You know, one of the better world economies. But I mean, if, if you, if you, if you haven't been, if you, as long as you haven't been like living under a rock, you, when you think of America, you probably think of excellence to a certain degree. And yet, as I said last week, be careful. Be careful of that mindset, right? Well, oh, look at our military. We got all these great jets, and man, we got all these tanks. And, uh, and I say this if you don't know, I'm an army chaplain, so the, so I, I would like to think that I am patriotic. But at the same time, as great as say this country is, apart from God's grace, we could be like another country. It's hard to think, right? I said last week, I mean, to think, it probably, it's probably really hard to imagine like a year from now, there's another flag flying over every flagpole in every city. It's really hard to imagine that there's an imposed curfew and there's tanks rolling down our streets with men who don't speak our language calling the shots. Because apart from God's grace, that reality could be. And that's the issue in this story. He says, you guys really need to self-evaluate. Things. Are you better than all these other nations? Are you? The answer is, no, of course not. And, and like I said, 40 years earlier, the circumstances for Israel was completely night and day different, but pride had came and attacked them, worked its way into their lives. That's the thing. Sometimes you don't even realize that you're into pride, that, that pride has taken root. And so he's calling them, self-evaluate yourselves. And that line of thinking is what we're going to continue working with today as we move into verse 8. So verse 8, we continue, and he says this, The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. This is what he says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So what does that mean? So what he says is, he says, I'm coming on the scene here. This is God speaking. Amos is is bringing this message. He says, God has essentially sworn an oath. He's made a binding commitment, and it's basing it off of himself, his own character, his own personhood. And, and what is this binding commitment that he makes? Well, it's at the end of verse 8, that I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. To, to deliver up, what does that mean? Well, the idea of delivering up at the end of verse 8 is the idea of essentially handing over prisoners. So God is making, so says Amos in verse 8, he's making this binding commitment. He's swearing this oath based upon his own character. That, what will he do? He's going to essentially hand them over as prisoners. Hand them over to their enemies. Why? Well, the answer of the why comes in the middle of verse 8. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I abhor the pride of Israel. And I hate his strongholds. 
this people and their nationalistic, militaristic, self-confidence, overconfidence goes all the way back to verse 1. He says, you're at ease. You shouldn't be at ease. You feel secure in your mountain fortresses in Samaria. You shouldn't. But that's what their pride is based off of. They're thinking, no one's going to touch me. We've got these mountain fortresses here in Samaria. <laughs> like, we're awesome. No, like, no, anybody to attack us would be crazy and we'd be able to defend ourselves. And that's why God's upset. God's not upset. And I think Owen and I were talking about this because we're discussing, well, where's the line between, like, self-confidence and, and maybe, and then that pride and, they're not in trouble because they have strongholds. Okay, They're not in trouble because they have garrisons. They're not in trouble because they have a, a good military or they've got these defenses that are built. It's not a problem that they have strongholds. The problem is that they are completely and totally trusting and depending upon those strongholds, upon their military might. Not God. Right, so, so the solution isn't, well, let's just not have any military. Let's just not have any defense or stronghold. Well, we're not called to be foolish. <laughs> like, that's, like, that's foolish. The problem isn't that they have a stronghold. The problem is that they're placing all their trust, all their dependence, all their faith in the stronghold, in their own might. Not God. They're not dependent upon God. And that's where this pride is. That's what God is saying. I hate these strongholds. And I'll tell you what, sometimes it sneaks up on you in ways that you wouldn't even realize. You know, I've thought a lot about this, about what, what if any strongholds of pride in our life do we have? And it's sneaky. Sometimes you don't even realize it. That's why I think it's good that we're Okay, he calls them to self-evaluate things. How are things? I remember when we started Lynchburg City Church four years ago this August, and um, I was really prideful. I don't think I realized it so much at the time, but I was. I, I remember thinking, well, we'll probably have within the first six to eight weeks you know, over a hundred people here. And, you know, if this was a school year, um, and school was in session, we might have over a hundred people. Um, to give you guys an idea if you're not normally here, but that's what my mindset was. I was thinking, well, we'll have easily over a hundred people in the first, first month, first six weeks, we'll definitely be there. And I was like, I don't think I, I verbally said this, but I thought it. I was thinking, well, I kind of feel bad for all the other churches. I mean, like, when people like hear me preach, man, they're going to just leave and feel bad for Jerry Falwell Sr. Here he started Thomas Road, and man, they're going to probably go from hero to zero in just a moment. And uh, that was what I thought. I, I, I mean, I thought that through my own abilities, my own talents, my own skill, man, I was going to grow this. I was going to make it happen. Joe Decreon. That's what I thought. I really did. I really thought that, I didn't even know the statistics that most, most, most new churches don't hit 100 people in attendance till like year four. I didn't even know those, but I was just like, man, I mean, what would people do? I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking common sense. Like you can go hear Jonathan Falwell preach or you can hear me preach and actually, and you know, you can, you can really get the Bible here as, as well as that delivery. Um, 
And so that didn't happen. So in case you're wondering, things didn't play out that way. And later I thought, good night, Joe. As if you could make it happen. I thought I could. I thought if I just, man, if I just preach a, just a little bit better sermon, and man, people will be knowing the Bible, and man, everyone's just going to be flocking to come and hear me. And it didn't happen. God's like, yeah, nope. God's like, yeah, I may have given you certain gifts, Joe, but yeah, no. And for me, that, that stronghold of, of pride was seeping in through maybe my own natural abilities or giftedness or talents. And sometimes that's, that's the form they take, right? You say, well, then where's that line between, okay, I think God's gifted me in this area, or I have a natural talent in this area too, I don't want to be like the people in this story. And I think it's where, yes, I think it's totally fine to, one, have a a military, nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong to recognize the gifts that maybe God has given you, the talents that he has bestowed upon you, but just to remember that he who gives can, as the song says, take away. A year from now, there could be flags of another nation flying over every city in this country. A year from now, I could have a stroke or an aneurysm, and then my ability to speak, which I kind of need as a pastor, could be gone. And then what? Car accident? Driving out of here today, getting a car accident, and everything change. Happens every day. So I think the line, Owen, is we say, yes, we live in America, and that's that's pretty great. Yes, God has given me this or this or this, but apart from God's continual grace over our city, our state, our nation, apart from God's continual grace, even in my own life, I'm nothing without him. I think that's that's the line, right? That's the line between recognizing, yes, okay, I've been given this, but it could easily be taken away. The people no longer really are depending upon God. They're no longer really trusting God. Why? Because they don't need God. They've got it all figured out. They've enjoyed 40 years of peace and prosperity in this golden age. And uh, that's the temptation. The temptation is, is when things are going well, man, to not need God. And yet, I think it's good for us to think about this. I think it's good for us, as Amos says, to really self-reflect and remember, as well as things may be going in your life right now, that could change in a moment. Apart from God's grace, you could be fill in the blank. I think that's one of the best ways to combat that pride. And it's so sneaky. I think to a certain degree, these people aren't even aware of it in their life. They're not even aware. They don't know. That's why he's saying, guys, you really need to self-evaluate yourselves. Because you're being so foolish. Well, we go to verses 9 and 10. This is what he says. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him 
up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he shall say, shh, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Well, here's the picture. I like to visualize verses 9 and 10, kind of like a war movie. Maybe the set's like something at the end of Saving Private Ryan. It's, it's a very bleak picture in verses 9 and 10, okay? Very bleak. Think of like bombed out streets and, and, and uh, crumbling concrete all over the place, windows busted out. And so there's a house and there's essentially some survivors. Apparently the initial attack has already come, right? That delivering over of the verse 8, that God has made this binding commitment that it would happen. Well, apparently that's happened. So verses 9 and 10 are a picture, right, of further events. And so there's 9 or 10 guys, that maybe they're soldiers, maybe they're civilians mixed with soldiers. They're in this house. I just imagine like the house is just crazy crumbling from that initial siege that we know will come. By 722, the Assyrians will come. This will happen. And so they're there, and they're, they're in this house, and, and, th- and they've initially survived the initial attack or uh, the siege of the Assyrian forces. And then what happens? Even those ten that were in the house, they too die. Very bleak picture. And then what happens? Verse 10, here's the picture. So, Apparently, one of the guys in the house who died of the ten, apparently one of his relatives comes to bury him. I, I mean, he just, he just walks in the room and there's just bodies all over the room. And, and there's his, maybe his cousin, his uncle, so he, he goes to, to get him and, and prepare his body and, and bury him. And, and there's, apparently there's someone else in the room there and he says, hey, is there any, is there anybody else alive in here? And the guy says, no, there's no one else, it's just me. And he says, shh. Don't mention God's name, which is kind of a strange thing. Perhaps the interpretive challenge of today's text comes at the end of verse 10 in that he says, shh, silence, don't mention God's name. And you think, well, what, what? that's a strange thing to say, right? Why, why would he say, shh, silence, don't mention God's name? And, and I'll give you, I'm going to give you essentially... If you like alternate endings, I'm going to give you three different, I think, options, and you can choose whatever one you want as far as to make sense of that. And I'll I'll give you kind of what one stands out to me. But one possibility of why he's telling him, the guy who's come to get his relative to bury him, and the other guy is like, yeah, it's just me. I'm the only one surviving in here. Shh, don't mention the Lord's name. The first possibility is to invoke or mention the Lord's name at this point would possibly risk additional disaster by the Lord, in response to his name. That's the first possibility. The second possibility is that to mention the Lord's name at this point in the story would be a little inappropriate since apparently all these other people have died because of the Lord, right? We go back to verse 8. The Lord makes this oath, this binding commitment that he is going to deliver up the city and apparently they've died as a result of the Lord's discipline on the city. And so it would be kind of inappropriate to mention his name at this point since they've died under his judgment. And the third possibility is that we understand the phrase we must not mention, and I quote, end quote, we must not mention. We, we take that phrase, and, and that is actually an interpretation of the negated infinitive not to mention. And if we understand it like that, then what he's saying is, instead of we must not mention, he's essentially saying that there's no point to mention. 
In other words, the room is filled with all these dead bodies. The guy goes, gets his relative to prepare him for, for burial. And the one survivor, he says, hey, are you, are you the only one alive? He says, yes. He's like, all right. And he's essentially saying, shh. Like, there's no point to, to even mention God's name. In other words, it's not going to bring them back from the dead. Like, it's too late to, to invoke God. It's too late to go to him and pray for him to intercede at this point. It's, it's just too late. And that's probably the one I think I probably would favor. The first two seem rather superstitious in that, well, we shouldn't mention the Lord's name because it could bring upon further wrath and judgment since God was the one that brought it in the first place. I thought those seemed more on the superstitious side. I thought the third interpretation probably held the best sense, and that's why he's saying, shh, like, shh, there's no point to even mention God's name at this point as they're stepping over bodies and... It's a very bleak picture. Okay, I mean, it, it is probably, I mean, the close to maybe like Aleppo in Syria that like, it, just imagine that, and that's, that's the picture that Amos is painting. Very bleak, very ugly, very, very hopeless picture. And so he says in verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. In other words, the houses of the wealthy, the houses of the poor, there's not going to be a lot left, regardless of who owns them. This is this picture, verse 11, of this total destruction. Then verse 12. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood or bitterness. So he's going to ask two hypothetical questions, which he expects a negative answer. He expects his audience to say no. It might not seem as clear to you because it didn't seem very clear to me that these were rhetorical questions, and the obvious answer was no. But the first one he says is, do horses run on rocks? I don't know a lot about horses, because when I read this, I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, maybe they run on rocks. Maybe they don't. Um, probably a better picture of this, so what he's, what he's saying is, do, would you take a horse, and would you run that horse on, on these jagged rocks on the edge of a cliff? That's probably a better picture of the text. Like, yeah, it seems... Kind of like a liability, so probably not. Well, that's the that's what he's trying to get through. Like, no, of course not. And then he asks this question. He says, "Does one plow there with oxen?" And I'm once again, I'm like, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever seen an ox in real life, and uh, I don't have much agricultural or any type of farming background, so I don't, I don't know. Um, but your Bible, like mine. It might say, does one plow there? There's a hyperscript in mind, superscript, it says, or the sea. The, the phrase, with oxen, can, can be divided into this phrase, meaning with oxen into the sea. And at that point, I think the rhetorical question makes a lot more sense. Like, would you take oxen, which you would use to plow a field, and instead of plowing a field, just going to run them right into the sea? Just into the sea. You'd be like, what the heck? Like... Well, and you wouldn't do that. That's just dumb, all right? I don't care whether you live here in the 8th century or you live in 2017. That's, that's foolish. That's absurd. That's stupid. And that's the point that Amos is trying to make. 
It's so absurd. And he says, just as absurd and stupid as that is, that's what you've done. Boom. That's what you've done. In that you've taken justice and you've turned it into poison. When you say justice, you're like, you might think of justice like in a legal sense. Yes. If you're thinking that and if you've been here through the series, you know what's happened. A lot of these wealthy members of the Israeli society have essentially lied and twisted the truth in legal matters so that the poor and less affluent citizens, they don't, they don't get a, a fair shake in court. And the wealthier citizens have done this to take advantage of the poorer citizens. Justice doesn't exist as far as Amos is concerned in Israel. There's no fairness in the courts in Israel. As absurd and stupid it would be to run the horses on those rocky cliffs or to plow the oxen into the sea, as absurd as that would be, he says, you've done that anyways. You guys are a joke. Paraphrase. But they are. It's pretty jacked up there. That's the picture we see. Verse 13, he says, You who rejoice in low debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? Interesting here. So Israel, remember I said 40 years earlier, the tables were turned. Israel was kind of underneath another regime, another nation. Well, now things are different. And according to 2 Kings 14.25, there was a, a military campaign, campaign led by Jeroboam II to recapture some of these cities that had been taken 40 years earlier when they really needed and depended upon God. And so during that military campaign of Jeroboam II, once again, that's 2 Kings 14.25, they took back these two cities. And there's, if you like sarcasm, there's definitely some of it here by, by all indication and so what he's saying here, the first name of the city, Lodabar, it means not a thing. And Karnaim means a pair of horns, which in that culture, it was a symbol of strength. So, so Amos comes and he says, remember, remember, and this really is kind of in, in line with that continuation, another example of pride in the people. He says, remember during the campaign of Jeroboam 2, when you took these two cities, remember, you guys thought you were so awesome. They were so cool. You thought you guys were like the cat's meow. You were so great, and you were boasting about the fact that you took not a thing. And then you continued to boast, and you said, by our own strength, we took strength. And you're like, what? And that's what Amos is saying. You're bragging and boasting about capturing the city, which means not a thing. You've taken not a thing, and then by your own strength, you've said that you've taken this other city, which essentially means and represents strength. This is Israel. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They don't need God. They don't depend upon Him like they should. You know, they think, they think, well, the sun's going to come up tomorrow, just like it does every single day, and everything will just be totally fine. Why? Because it has been for the last year, it has been for the last decade, it has been for the last four decades, and they cannot contemplate any other reality. And yet, this is 760 BC when he's writing this. By 722, 
the might of the Assyrian Empire will be at their doors. And the reality which they never thought possible will take place. While he doesn't mention the Assyrians by name, verse verse 14, the next verse is all but referring to them. For behold, verse 14, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation. Assyria, 722. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Label Hamath to the brooks of the Arba. The, the designating locations here represents Israel's northernmost border and Israel's southernmost border. In other words, Amos is saying, they will take every square inch of your land. It won't be isolated to just this one area. No way. Yes. That's, that's far out here, Ames. Yeah, I know. This is what the Lord has said. So get your crap together while you still have time. Repent of the pride and the arrogance. Repent of the misjustice and mistreatment that has been occurring. And get your act together now. It's so sneaky, pride. Sometimes it just lays dormant and you don't even realize it's there. And, and then it's, and you look back, you're like, wow, I had really been prideful during that period of my life. But, uh, I don't know, early on in the church, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a couple that, um, a couple that I had, uh, that were married here two, three years ago. Remember, I, I, uh, I hadn't seen them around for like six weeks or so, and I remember messaging and saying, hey, are you guys doing okay? You always, you always worry about people. You never know where they're at. I hadn't seen them about six weeks. Message them, hey, how goes everything? And, um, like, oh, well, everything's perfectly fine. I'm like, is it really fine? Like, yeah, everything's fine. I haven't seen you around in six weeks. It doesn't seem to be going fine. Oh, no, we're doing terrific. Are you sure? Oh, yeah, we're doing awesome. And about two years ago, this is about like two, two months after that conversation where I was checking in on them, I, I get a, a text message and it says, hey, we're, we're splitting up. We're getting divorced. And uh, come to find out that things weren't all that okay between them. Things weren't okay at all. Pride says, oh, we're fine. We don't need help. Terrence texts you. He's like, hey, I haven't seen you. Praying for you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Pride says, I don't need people's help. Pride says, I don't need God's help. Newsflash. You do. We don't just need God's help. We need each other. That's what we talk about in small group every week, right? Exhort one another every day so long as it is called today. Speak truth into each other's lives every day. You think, oh no, I'm good. If you think you're good and you don't need God or you don't need the people of God sitting in front of you and to your left and right right now, then you have no idea what a great enemy that is up against you every moment of every day. For Peter says, he is prowling around like a lion seeking to devour and destroy you. 
If you think you're okay and you don't need God and you don't need the people of God and you don't need to be in community, you don't need to be a part of a local church, then you are just as foolish as the people that we've been talking about for the last half hour. So if Amos was here, he'd say, how are you doing? How are things with you and God? And before you say, oh, everything with me and God is okay, think about that. Think about that. Amos would call you to self-evaluate your relationship with the Lord. He would call you to repent. Pride is sneaky. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't realize that it has taken root in our life till after it's too late. Till after that person files for divorce. Till after we're going into the bombed out building to pick up the bodies off the floor. So I want to pray. I want to pray right now for us. God, we love you. And we need you, God. I pray that you would protect us from foolishness, from being stupid, from thinking that we can live in this world and just be a lone ranger. And do this on our own. Because we can't. And we need you, God, every second, every day. And it's by your good grace alone that we're even here, that we're breathing right now, that, that we're sitting here and we're not in a Pakistani prison on death row like I see a BB because she's a Christian. It's your grace, your grace alone, God. So I pray that Amos' words, his call for self-evaluation of pride and sin would really take root in our lives, Lord, before it's too late, while there's still time to make things right. Show us, God. Show us what what you want us to see. Show us areas in our life that, that we... We need to give some more thought and attention to that. Maybe we need to repent of God. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.